You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Let's talk about outing. Here's what outing is. When someone is closeted, when someone is lying about their sexual orientation, about what they're up to sexually, uh, doing one thing in private and a whole another thing in public, that can make them a target for outing. Now, outing is a brutal tactic and it should be reserved as a political tool for taking on brutes. You out a Larry Craig, a sitting U.S. Republican senator who was anti-gay, had a grotesquely anti-gay voting record, backed the Defense of Marriage Act, opposed the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, opposed protections against hate crimes for LGBT people, just voted, voted, voted every time he possibly could. Anything he could possibly do because he was a religious conservative and a Republican from Idaho, anything he could do to hurt gay people from his position of political power, he did. And he was sucking cock in restrooms, in toilets. Famously, he's the guy who was tapping his toes with a wide stance in a restroom in Minneapolis's airport. He got caught. Got caught red-handed and cock-mouthed. And outed, consequently. And he was a deserving target of outing. If somebody had had the drop on him, if somebody knew what he was up to and had some sort of proof and had come forward to out him, that would have worked too. It wouldn't necessarily have taken a police sting. That was the case with the Reverend Ted Haggard. He was the head of the National Association of Evangelicals. He was a huge force in the right-wing Christian movement. He had a weekly phone conversation with George W. Bush while he was president, founded this insane megachurch in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the Evangelical Vatican, they call it, and was opposed to gay people against gay marriage, uh, thought gay people and gay sex was sick and sinful and twisted and and was having sex with a male prostitute that was also getting meth for him at his request. And that guy, that male sex worker, rightfully so, outed Ted Haggard for his hypocrisy, took his story to ABC News and outed the motherfucker. And he deserved it, right? Because of that conflict between his private conduct, which I think people have a right to privacy, and his public life. That cognitive dissonance, that battle. It's like Barney Frank said on Real Time. We all have a right to privacy. What we don't have a right to is hypocrisy. And if you go to work on Monday morning and beat the fuck out of gay people Monday through Friday at work and then Saturday and Sunday you are filleting them, that's hypocrisy. If you secretly are one. And that's how those sorts of closet cases Work. They protect themselves. They protect their own closets by being grotesquely anti-gay so that no one will suspect them of being gay because look at their anti-gay voting record. Look at the things they say from the pulpit. Who could ever suspect they might be gay themselves? So there's this incentive for these closet cases to be worse than just the average homophobe might be. Not enough that you disapprove. You have to be seen publicly beating the shit out of. And so – sexual minority communities to protect ourselves, we have outed people to steal power away from these gay, anti-gay monsters. So that's outing, which brings us to the Ashley Madison hack. 
as I said last month when the news first broke of the Ashley Madison hack, I thought this was terrible. People were online. People were on Twitter celebrating the Ashley Madison hack, saying that they were delighted at the prospect of the hackers releasing all of the names and personal details of everyone who is a member of Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison, for those of you who have been living under a rock, was a hookup site, a dating site for married people who wanted to have an affair. Their motto was, life is short, have an affair. They promised all of their clients, their customers, that their data was more secure to Ashley Madison than anywhere else, that they had insanely airtight security protocols, and it turns out not to have been true. And all of their data was stolen. And a month after the news of the hack broke, the hackers released all of Ashley Madison users' data. And people's names are out there. Their credit card information is out there. Their email addresses are out there. And people are being outed. And that's a tragedy, right? People who are having affairs, oh my God. And whenever anybody says that they're having an affair, everyone's mental image is some asshole cheating on someone who loves him very much and leaving her at home crying with you know her eight-month-old baby. And that's just not the way it works. There's a lot of people who are on those sites, we're on Ashley Madison because they are in ethical open relationships or because they are trapped in sexless or unloving or emotionally unfulfilling marriages that for practical and legitimate reasons, they cannot leave. Not everyone is in an economic position to be able to leave their spouse. One of the things that people noted in the 2008 economic crisis was that divorce rates plummeted. People sometimes can't afford to leave each other and so they don't and then they make compromises, accommodations. They do what they need to do to stay sane in that marriage that they are trapped in. That's one reason that a lot of people cheat. And as we've talked about in this show endlessly, some people have good cause to cheat. And some people are assholes and serial adulterers and monsters who should be left and who should be perhaps condemned by their – friends and family members and people who it involves. But you can't tell just by finding somebody's name on the Ashley Madison dump in that dump of data whether they were a good cheater or a bad cheater. And yes, there are good cheaters out there. So I'm opposed to this hack. I'm opposed to the dump of the data. I'm opposed to outing all of these nobody adulterers, all of these cheaters, some of whom may not have been cheating at all or may not have been cheating their partners out of anything their partners wanted or valued because they're private citizens, because they're not harming anyone else, because they're nobodies. The first person public figure to be outed in the Ashley Madison hack where it rose to the level of a legitimate outing, Josh Duggar oldest son of Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar of the Duggars formerly of television, formerly of 19 Kids and Counting, currently still of the quiverful right-wing radical Christian fecundity movement. They are fundamentalist Christians who believe that they should have as many children as physically possible because they regard their children as weapons to be used in a war to seize control of the country and establish a Christian dictatorship. That is what they're about. And it was also cute and charming and funny on TV, wasn't it? So you read a little bit about the Quiverful movement that they were proselytizing for and stumping for and advocating. And you're like, oh, this is a little creepy and fucked up. Put all these people in hajibs, change the name Jim Bob to Muhammad, and right-wing Christians would be freaking the fuck out 
about these religious conservatives of a different stripe who are weaponizing their uteruses. Anyway, Josh Duggar, oldest son, went from the family compound to the family research council where he was the head of their action group. He was the head of their political poli- their political action, whatever. He was the president of it. And he ran around the country stumping against same-sex marriage, against marriage equality, uh, attacking abortion rights, attacking trans kids. That was his job. And he pounded the lectern and talked about morality and how we need to bring America back to God and protect the family, protect the family, protect marriage, protect marriage, protect marriage from all of those people who want to get married who are queer. Got to protect marriage from them. They're destroying marriage, destroying the family. Thus said Josh Duggar, who, as it turns out, not only did we learn three months ago, had molested his sisters when he was an adolescent and another girl unrelated to him when he was an adolescent, but had also been a member of Ashley Madison. We find out in the Ashley Madison dump. Josh Duggar had two active accounts. And an OkCupid profile and a fake Facebook page where he was an entirely different person, where he was looking for casual sex and fantasy fulfillment and extended foreplay and hot babes. And he was friends with hookers, sex workers, and strippers on his Facebook page, his secret private Facebook page under a different name. Radar called friendships with sex workers and hookers depraved his depraved Facebook account. There's nothing depraved about having strippers and sex workers as buddies. What's depraved is being hypocritical closet case. What's depraved is attacking people for the thing that you are doing yourself. Just like Larry Craig, when he was a U.S. Senator attacked gay people for that thing he was doing himself in bathrooms and airports. Josh Duggar was attacking gay people for the supposed crime of attacking marriage, of destroying traditional marriage. All the while, Josh Duggar was fucking other women, was cheating on his sad sack wife, Anna, who has now accepted responsibility for her husband's infidelity. That's part of the Quiverful movement. Raise girls to be stupid and gullible. Raise girls to regard themselves as the property of their brothers, fathers, husbands. Put it on girls' heads that if you're Husband strays, it's because you weren't putting out constantly because the only reason anybody ever cheats is because they can't fuck the person they've already been fucking for a very long time, which is actually not how it works. People cheat for all sorts of different reasons, including the desire for something different, maybe once or twice in their life. But Anna Duggar is blaming herself for Josh Duggar attacking marriage. And why did Josh Duggar, in the statement he released, why did he attack marriage, his own marriage? Because he watched pornography. Satan built a fortress in his heart with old copies of Hustler and Penthouse from the resale shop because you can't even buy those in corner stores anymore. Satan, Josh Duggar said, built a fortress of porn in his heart. And that, of course, made Josh into, in his own words, the biggest hypocrite ever. And all of us out here who watch or consume porn – without becoming towering, monstrous, prick hypocrites, are left to wonder, how is it that it works this way, just in Christian land, that you take pornography and you throw it into a room with some good Christian men and lock the door, and a half an hour later, when you unlock the door, out pour all of these 
possessed cheaters and sex addicts. Doesn't seem to have that effect on people who aren't fundy Christian nutbags. Doesn't seem to have that effect on people who haven't raised in a faith that pits them against their own natural desires. On some level, reading about Josh Duggar this week, I almost feel sorry for the child molesting hypocrite piece of shit. Almost. Because he is a victim of the indoctrination that his sisters are also being victimized by. It's not healthy to teach girls that they are the property of the men in their lives, that they're their father's property and then their husband's property. It's also not healthy to teach men that about girls or to teach boys that about girls. Josh Duggar clearly suffers from that Madonna whore thing. There was the wife that he had to fuck and was allowed to fuck and how much fun was that? So he went out and met strippers and committed adultery and lived a little. It would have been better for Josh Duggar if he could have seen through the sex negative, porn negative, reality negative bullshit his parents had pounded into his head all of his life and reconciled those two halves of himself. The half that wanted to be a family man and the half that wanted to have some sexual adventures. But he couldn't reconcile those two things. He had to publicly rail against the boogeyman. That would be the gaze because that absolved him of the sin of his straight boogeyman shit that he was engaging in. Tony Perkins, in the wake of the Josh Duggar revelation, the latest one, said that Josh Duggar has hurt the Christian family movement, which is hilarious because when it came out that Josh Duggar had only at age 15 molested four of his younger sisters and a family friend, Tony Perkins was praying for Josh Duggar. Now that Josh Duggar has been revealed to be a towering Cheating hypocrite, he's hurt the family movement, according to Tony Perkins, his former boss at Family Research Council. Molest them, kids, you haven't heard a religious movement. Cheat on your wife, you've heard a religious movement. And think about what Tony Perkins means when he says that. He's hurt the Christian family movement. Josh Duggar has made it harder for the Christian family movement to hurt other families. Because that's what the Christian family movement as – represented by the Family Research Council, is all about. It's about ta attacking same-sex couples and their families. It's about attacking families with gay, lesbian, bi, or trans children that are doing right by them. So it's not just about attacking same-sex couples. It's also about attacking opposite-sex couples. It's about attacking churches that are queer-affirming and accepting, which FRC regularly does. So if Josh Duggar has made it harder for FRC to do all of that, to attack same-sex couples, to attack children who are queer, to attack trans kids. They're all over attacking trans kids, implying that trans kids in public restrooms are there to rape other kids. Josh Duggar made it harder for FRC and Tony Perkins to do all that. I guess we should be sending Josh Duggar thank you notes. Thank you, Josh Duggar, for your towering hypocrisy. Thank you, Josh Duggar, for being such a messy, conflicted, porn-addicted, Satan fortress-constructed-with-an-idiot. Because you have damaged an organization that exists to damage American families and American children. So thanks, Josh Duggar, bringing this all the way around back to outing. I am against outing, except when it's called for. Brutal tactic should be reserved for brutes. Josh Duggar was a brute professionally. That was the line of work Josh Duggar was going into. The Franklin Graham line of work, the Brian 
Brown line of work, the professional brute who criticizes, blames, slams, attacks other people who live their lives by their own light, who are doing what they want to do with people who want to do it with them and not harming anyone. Josh Duggar was monetizing hatred and bigotry for a living. Demagoguing, pointing a finger at same-sex couples and accusing same-sex couples by merely existing of attacking opposite-sex couples, of undermining or destroying traditional marriage. And by traditional, they just mean opposite sex. But Josh Duggar really had it coming. Josh Duggar is a legitimate target for outing. There is too much collateral damage here to out Josh Duggar for his hypocrisy, to harm FRC in this way wasn't worth the other millions and millions and millions of people who were outed collaterally. There have been two suicides that we know of so far of people whose names popped up in the Ashley Madison dump. There are people in Saudi Arabia where adultery, infidelity, is punishable by death who have been outed in the Ashley Madison dump. There are gay people. I didn't know there were gay people on Ashley Madison, but there were gay people on Ashley Madison seeking same-sex sex with other married, closeted gay people. And some of those gay people are in Saudi Arabia, where not only adultery is a death penalty offense, but so is homosexuality. People are going to die. And our sympathies should be there. Those are the people we should really feel sorry for. We don't have to feel sorry for Josh Duggar. Josh Duggar is the tiny, tiny silver lining in a massive black cloud that is the Ashley Madison dump, the silver speck in that enormous black cloud. And he had it coming. And I suspect as more of the data is dumped, just this week we learned there's twice as much that's about to come out, a dump, a subsequent dump twice as large as the previous one, more Christian conservative lying sack of shit hypocrites will be exposed. They will be outed. And I have one more thing to say about the Ashley Madison dump to those of you quickly who are elated by it, who are saying cheaters get what they deserve, who are happy about this. I want you to think for just a second about everything you've ever done or said online. Every website you've ever joined, every dating hookup app you've ever been a part of, every porn site you've ever visited, all the sexting that you've done with partners, the texting. We are all vulnerable in this way. With the exception of the public moralizing, scold, hypocrite shitbags like Josh Duggar, I think we should all have sympathy for the outed cheaters, even the cheaters who were cheating their partners out of something they wanted and valued. I'm not asking you to sign off on cheating. I'm asking you to sign off on there but for the grace of God, go I. Because even if you aren't a cheater, even if that's something you would never do, statistics tell us, we look at them, we know. That everybody's something. Maybe you have a FetLife account or you have a secret double life. You're not out about being kinky. You've sexted most likely. You have sent around pictures. You've sent dirty texts. Maybe you flirted with a coworker over text. We are all a hack, a lost laptop, a stolen cell phone away from the kind of exposure and public humiliation that the innocent cheaters, many of them, on Ashley Madison are going through today. And we should ache for them a little bit because it could be our number next, our fat life account, 
our personal accounts from before we were married, our sects, our emails, all of us are at risk of the same kind of violation. There is rage being directed at the Ashley Madison clients. The hackers themselves said they were doing it to punish these people. For what? For their private sexual conduct. Then it was wrong, maybe. And all I'm saying to everybody out there, I'm looking at Twitter right now, everybody out there who thinks this is awesome, is that if or when it happens to you, not going to feel so awesome. And we may live in a world where this in turn, one by one, happens to each of us. So maybe our tax should be when this happens, to shrug it off. And say, yep, people are, conf- people are messy. People are complicated. People can be one thing in public and another thing online. It doesn't mean they're bad people. And when we say that about others, we're saying that about ourselves too. And we know it to be true. Okay, coming up today on the regular show, we got tons of your cues. And on the Magnum, www.savagelovecast.com, where you can subscribe to the Magnum. On the Magnum, we have our frequent and uh, very welcome guest, Mistress Matisse, here to talk with us about sex work and to give some advice to a newbie kinkster. Coming up today on the show. Hey, Dan. I'm 41-year-old um, straight female. And I have been married for a year and been with my partner for four years. Um, right now, we have a nine-month-old baby. And he is not living at the house with us. He has moved out basically because I asked him to leave because he was exhibiting fits of rage, some provoked, some just out of nowhere. And it has come to my attention, you know, far too late, really, that he has has some mental health challenges around depression and anxiety. Things started to go south when we started to try to have a family together. I should probably also say that he's seven years younger than me. He just sort of exhibiting, started exhibiting behaviors of not being responsible or not being ready. I had two miscarriages, neither of which he provided very good support for me during those, and probably not I for him um, either because, you know, I was going through my own feelings of loss and sadness, and then not getting support from him just made me want to shut down. And he was lying to me about uh, money, spending money that was mine, and then hoping I didn't find out about it, which I did, and borrowing money from my friend and asking her not to tell me, and just all of these really weird things, like being sneaky and hiding, which I later found out just recently was because he didn't feel adequate. I had been in a lot of relationships where I um, got ripped off. I got left holding the bag. I took these men in and you know, I'm really good with money. I'm really good with manifesting. I'm really good with getting what I want out of life in a a good way. And then I often get taken advantage of. We bought a house together. We finally got pregnant and sustained the pregnancy and have a nine month old. During my pregnancy, he was a maniac, getting blackout drunk, running around with people 10 years younger, 13 years younger than him, 10 years younger than him, made friends with another female that made me uncomfortable, decided that instead of limiting contact with this female, that he was going to increase his contact with her, whether or not it bothered me. And I know that this gentleman, this man that I love is just hurting and trying to figure out his role in the world and being afraid that he's a dad and being afraid to be a husband, but I love him and I want him to come back. And I'll wrap it up now. The one thing that I haven't been able to give him much of is space because I've been hormonal and either just having miscarried or pregnant or just having a new baby and I needed him and I was needy and codependent and now he's getting the space and now he thinks he doesn't love me in the same way anymore 
and doesn't know if he's going to come home. And I'm here with two kids, one from a different partnership, just trying to hold it together. And I don't, I don't know what to do. This guy is doing you a favor, a favor that you can't see. There seems to be a lot of things that over the course of this relationship that you didn't see. For instance, someone who was a lousy partner to you, a lousy husband to you as you suffered through two miscarriages, probably not going to be a great parent, probably not going to be suddenly a great partner and wonderful husband when there's an infant in the house. Uh, this guy is kind of a mess and kind of a train wreck. You, however, uh, don't sound like a mess, don't sound like a train wreck. You describe yourself as very capable, very able, very good with money, very responsible. And yet you choose these guys. You pick men who are irresponsible, who are out of control, who are everything you're not. You choose these men that in a way are you reaching out and slamming your hand down on the self-destruct button. And I would ask you not what's wrong with him – this guy, we can all see what's wrong with him. He's a mess. He's irresponsible. He's bad with money. He's an asshole. But I would ask you, what's wrong with you? There's a whole lot right with you. But there's something singular, not plural, not many things, not even big, huge, enormous things. Well, it's kind of a big thing. There's one thing wrong with you, which is this pattern of choosing these awful partners, choosing these guys who are irresponsible and out of control and sticking by them and saying that you love them and wanting them back into your life. And I don't know what sort of – you know, you take some responsibility. You say you were codependent. You say you were very needy. You say you're very hormonal. I don't know what ringer you put this guy through, right? There's his side of the story too. But there's a reason he's gone and I think it's him. And it's good that he's gone. So even if I had a magic word, I had a magic potion, even if I had a bouquet of love in idleness flowers, please Google Midsummer Night's Dream, you will get the reference. I wouldn't give you one. I wouldn't give you a petal because I don't want you to get this guy back. You don't really want this guy back. Maybe you want an idea of a guy. You want an idea of a co-parent. You want an idea of a loving husband. But this guy ain't any of that shit. And you and your children – plural, are well rid of him and his irresponsibility, his drama, and his issues. And for you, the benefit of your children, you need to get a grip on your issues. I would get thee to a therapist, go, to talk this shit out at great length, not his shit, your shit, and figure out how to identify and choose better partners in the future. But this guy, your soon-to-be ex-husband, I think I speak for everyone listening when I say I am glad he's going to be your ex-husband and one day you will be glad he's your ex-husband and your children and his child will be glad of him being your ex-husband someday. And here's hoping with some therapy and some introspection and some thought, you will have a better husband, a better partner, and they will have a better father figure in their lives in the future. Hey, Dan, it is Corey and I'm calling from Toronto, Ontario. I'm calling because my brother recently went to Australia and he met a guy who he had some drinks with and went home to his place with his girlfriend uh, because he had invited him. And it was all very much about let's go home and have some drinks and blah, blah, blah. And the guy was very nice and very lovely. However, my brother needed to really go to the washroom. He needed to go pee. All right, Dan, you need to go pee. Bad. So they went to the guy's house. 
and before they got in, my brother told the guy that he needed to pee really badly. And the guy said, no problem, let's just pee outside. Let's just pee on the lawn. Which, obviously, two straight guys, by the way, I'm gay, but two straight guys pee against uh, the wind and it's all okay. With me, I might get sexually attracted. So anyway, uh, my brother starts peeing and all of a sudden, the guy beside him says, have you ever drank your mate's piss? And my brother obviously was like, no, can't say that that's ever happened to me. And then he, by he, I mean the guy beside him, says, oh, well, it kind of tastes salty and warm. No worries, let me try yours. And bends over immediately while my brother is midstream and drinks my brother's piss. My brother, of course, is midstream. It's very difficult for him to just stop peeing because, let's be honest, when you are midstream, you don't really end up having the control unless you've been doing your Kegels. And he is completely overwhelmed by the fact that someone is drinking his piss. So my brother finally stops and so does the guy who's drinking his pee. And my brother says, what the fuck is going on? And the guy says, oh, no worries. It's all good. We all do that. Turns out the guy that he met is from the UK and the guy that he met also said that it's normal in the UK to drink your mate's piss. I'm wondering, is this actually real? Is this actually true? Because I call bullshit on this one. But what do you think? Actually, there's a scene in Love's Labor's Lost where the two straight guys who are buddies in that uh, drink each other's piss. Uh, No, no, this is not a thing. This does not happen. Um, sure, there are people out there who drink piss. There are probably straight guys out there after a long night, um, homo-socialing around with their straight mates, perhaps have taken a walk on the wild side and done something crazy, perhaps a blowjob, maybe a little bit of piss drinking. Uh, but this is not a thing that guys in the UK do, that mates do for mates. Perhaps that is how this guy talked your brother into doing it. Maybe your brother is gullible not just gulpable but gullable and he fell for this and went for it but i would consider your brother in unpacking the story a highly unreliable narrator because talking to you his gay brother confiding in you telling you this story about this crazy fucking thing he did he may not you know if he is straight identified but he has a tiny little bit of same sex attraction or desire in him he may have gone for it but wants to share this story with you about this phenomena, a guy drank drank my piss, oh my God, without admitting to you, his gay brother, that he might like a little man-on-man action too every once in a while because I promise you what probably went down that night was your brother or that guy went down on your brother and somehow a little bit of oral turned into uh, I got a piss, well, go ahead, piss in my mouth since your dick's already in my mouth and your brother was like perhaps drunk and went, all right, whatever, here we go. Because come on, use your common sense. Your brother is taking a whiz on someone's lawn and that person leaps in front of his stream with their mouth open. What would the reaction be of any even plastered individual at that moment as someone who has never been interested in somebody drinking his piss in his life or having some other dude's mouth near his cock in his whole life? If someone is charging towards his dick as he pisses with their mouth open, a guy. Your brother would 
take a step to the left, turn his hips in one direction or the other, directing the stream away and his dick away from the gaping maw of this person that he has no sexual interest in or attraction for. I'm betting your brother went out and got drunk. He met perhaps one of the rare guys on the planet who are an exception to his otherwise usual female target interest, female erotic target interest, went for it, did something crazy, wanted to tell somebody what he did, wanted an answer about whether this piss drinking thing is a thing people do. And so put it all on the other guy, told you this crazy story that can be disproved with a Google search. Do mates drink each other's piss in England and the United Kingdom as a thing? No results will pop up, I promise you. Because he wanted to hear from you about this phenomenon, guys drinking each other's piss. But he couldn't talk to you about it, honestly. Because he didn't want to come out to you, his gay brother, about the little sliver of him. The walk on the wild side chunk of him that may be up for a little man on man every now and then. Hi, Dan. A couple of years ago, I started dating a guy at work, which is mistake number one. Uh, it only lasted a couple of months, but before we started hooking up, I let him know I was a carrier of HSV2, the genital herpes virus. <clears throat> but I really liked him, and I thought that it was going to last longer. Um, it quickly fizzled, but we remained friends. A couple of years later, which is now, he started hooking up with a girl we work with, and she's psycho. <laughs> she's like the closest to, but not quite, worst-case scenario. Um, she stirs the pot a lot. She's really dramatic. The juicier the information, the better. And she talks a lot. Um, they were discussing their sexual history. And for some god-awful reason, my name came up. I, if he was so compelled to divulge the information of hooking up with someone with an STI, I don't really think that he needed to say my name. But that's besides the point. <clears throat> he spilled the beans. And now everyone at work knows that I have herpes. Um, when people ask me about it, I deflect and tell them that I've heard rumors about me too and that rumors fade. Like, basically don't feed the animal. Like, <laughs> I just want it to blow over as quickly as possible. But I am so hurt and I feel like my privacy has been completely violated. I see myself so far removed from their situation that this should never have been an issue. Like, I'm not fucking him. I'm not fucking her. So what is the point of talking about me? They are not using condoms, and neither of them have gone and got STI chicks, and that doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not part of their triangle at all. And my question is, like, what do I do? What can I say? I feel like she's the kind of girl that's like a ticking time bomb, and that if I try to talk to her, it'll blow up into something way worse. Like, I'm a nice person. I stood up for her when people were talking shit. Like, I tell people that everyone's fighting their own battles and not make make life worse for anybody else. Like, I was there for her through a lot of tough shit. And I, I don't know, I've protected her against work-based drama, too. So the social stigma of HSV2 is so much worse than having the actual virus. But I don't know what else to say. Am I doing it right? And telling people to mind their own business, um, what else can I do? Hey, it's Dan Savage. I'm actually at work right now. 
You're right. Oh my God, you're at work. You're right to be angry and fuck her and fuck him. And uh, it's a bigger shame and there should be a bigger stigma on being an asshole and a blabbermouth yeah. and having herpes, which is really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. And I'm sorry this has been happening to you. It's terrible. Um, is it right to just kind of deflect? I just am kind of like not answering it and not I, I, addressing I, it. There's two ways you could go. You could either just deflect and like say, you know, that's not anything I want to talk about. There's also, and I know this like embraces the stigma, but it would be a good kind of karate move on the two of them. To be like, that's not true. I don't have herpes. I don't know why they would say that, which makes them look like crazy vindictive psychos, which they are, or she <laughs> is, but you would have to buy into the stigma of there's something shameful in having herpes and denying it. But you could, yeah. you know, I'm rubber, your glue bounces off me, sticks to <laughs> you. Because if she's running her mouth about this, she's trying to make you look bad. And, and you need to like, you know, and you can also like set that aside and just say, you know who really looks bad in all of this? She does. Millions and millions of people have herpes. Most people who have it don't, don't even know they have it. They've never had a symptom. Most people have had it at one outbreak, never again. It's not that big a deal. You know what's a big deal? Being a fucking psycho asshole all your life is a big deal. And it's going to cause her many more <laughs> problems than having herpes is ever going to cause me. Yes. And you could just rattle that Karen, off. I love you. <laughs> you could memorize that and rattle that off in the faces of any coworkers who bring it up. Millions of people I have it. Might. Most people don't know. You could have it. That crazy bitch, she could have it. Herpes is not a big deal. Being an asshole is. And she's an asshole. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And thank you for calling me back. <laughs> You're welcome. And good luck with your coworkers and everything else. All right. Thanks a bunch. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Hi, Dan. I am calling um, in search of advice for how I can help my friend deal with her very recent divorce. She is young. She's in her mid-20s. Well, the breakup started happening a few months ago. Basically, when she was seven months pregnant with her second child, with her husband, he told her he didn't love her. He hadn't loved her for a while. He'd been cheating on her basically since they got together, and he was going to leave her for another woman, which was a complete shock for everyone. Um, it's been a few months, and she's kind of starting to make a game plan. She's been meeting with lawyers and counselors and you know, the first steps of the actual legal proceedings are kind of starting to happen. My question is in how I can best support her with all of this. On the one hand, what he did was completely, completely shitty, the ultimate act of betrayal. And I've just been letting her, you know, vent and call him all the names that she wants to do. And I've just kind of been telling her what she wants to hear. Um, But, you know, lately it's been kind of difficult for me to do that because on the other hand marriage is a two-way street and while what he did was shitty he had his reasons for doing so and she obviously played some part in that happening so part of me wants to you know gently nudge her to openly communicate with him and ask him actually why this happened why he was unhappy um, and maybe have her you know recognize that she did play some part in it although she didn't know it but maybe it's, you know, hasn't been enough time and the wound is still too fresh. I'm just not really sure, but I do kind of want to help her learn and grow from this if I can. I don't know. I'm totally at a loss, Dan. I'd love if you could help me. So are you one of the women that this friend of yours, husband, had an affair with? That's all I could end up thinking. That, 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 that's the only thing that makes your call make sense. 
that this desire to shift the blame or to encourage your friend at this moment where she's abandoned with an infant to take the time to identify her own responsibility for her husband's philandering and lying to her throughout the life of their marriage. And you want her to take some time right now to sit down and look in a mirror and identify her flaws and the ways that she contributed to this, how she might have been at least partially the author of her own misery. This is not what a friend does for a friend when a friend has been fucked over viciously by her soon-to-be ex-husband. You know, maybe there's a time down the road for some scrutiny. Earlier today in the show, I was talking to a woman with the you know lousy husband who abandoned her, and I encouraged her to take responsibility for all the shitty men that she'd picked and that she needed to engage in a little bit of introspection, maybe get herself into therapy because there was a pattern. There's not necessarily a pattern here. Your friend could have drawn the short fucking straw. Some people are shitty people. Some people are awful husbands and sometimes awful husbands and awful wives happen to good people. This sounds like very likely is one of those times. I know marriage is a two-way street, but asshole is often a one-way street. And your obsession, not obsession, maybe that's too strong a word, your concern trolling around your friend's need to identify her own contribution here because marriage is a two-way street isn't compassion, it isn't friendship, and it isn't called for because there isn't a pattern here, right? It's not like your friend consistently has chosen asshole shitty husbands and you need to talk to her about why she continues to choose these asshole shitty husbands. It's not like someone who's married to a philandering piece of shit if they only set all the dials correctly in the marriage, if only the meals were cooked properly and on time, if only the laundry was done, if only the blowjobs were given joyfully and frequently, they never would have been cheated on by their asshole philandering spouse. That's just not how it works. There are some serial adulterer shit stains out there who lie to people, misrepresent themselves, and shred those people and spit them back out on their way out the door. That's what it sounds like happened to your friend to me. And I hear a lot of these stories. And if I were your friend's friend, and I don't want to pat myself in the back, but I think I might be a better friend to your friend right now than you're capable of being. I would be there with the ice cream. I would be there with the Netflix. I would be there with the sympathetic ear. I would be there with the bullshit detectors on full throttle to help her when she's getting into a new relationship really sussed the guy out because her own judgment perhaps was a little flawed in the last one or she couldn't have seen it coming and we're going to make sure we're going to vet the shit out of any other guy she dates in the future. I would be there with the child care. I would be there to babysit so she could get out and live a little despite having an infant at home and I would encourage her to get a good fucking lawyer. I wouldn't encourage her at this moment to wonder what she did wrong. I would encourage you, however, at this moment ask yourself why you're doing this friendship thing wrong because you're doing it wrong. Do it better. Be a better friend. Drop this. Hey, Dan. I'm a heteroflexible, straightish, bi-curious, whatever, 27-year-old fan of the podcast Living in D.C. My 23-year-old girlfriend of a year and I are in a really wonderful open relationship and we occasionally bring other people to bed. Uh, we recently had a foursome with another couple, which was really fun, uh, but things uh, got a little weird. So she 
My girlfriend knows this guy from staying in touch after meeting them on Tinder and having a threesome, but she doesn't really know his girlfriend outside of that initial encounter. They were visiting and crashing at her apartment, and my girlfriend was pretty insistent that nothing was going to happen, but sure enough, after a couple of rounds of drinks and a super fun night out, his girlfriend proposed that we fool around. Uh, we were all pretty drunk, except for my girlfriend, who was drying out and didn't have anything to drink. Um, and we started off, you know, coupled off, and then everyone exchanged hands or oral, and eventually I was fucking his girlfriend while he masturbated with my girlfriend's help. I was sure to check in with both of them before and during everything progressed. Um, and the next morning, we were woken up to him giving me oral, and we had a little threesome with him. Um, it was great, but I think that my girlfriend and I misread their boundaries because they later told her that they were confused and felt a little exploited and kind of blamed me for it. Seeing, So she was, you know, clear uh, of memory, and so she defended me, but ultimately they ended the friendship indefinitely. I've heard that couples will often mistakenly involve other people in uh, sexual escapades and then later regret it because of jealousy or unforeseen issues or something. Um, also, I don't want to feel like I sexually assaulted someone. I think we learned not to mix you know, new people and sex and alcohol. Um, but I'm hoping you can assuage my guilt. Does this happen when people you know, have group sex or, or foursomes uh, uh, or in, you know, are we just kind of going about this the wrong way? I would have to review the security videotapes to determine beyond a reasonable doubt that you did nothing wrong. You're asking me to tell you that you have nothing to feel guilty about, that you did nothing wrong. And it's possible that you did nothing wrong. And based on your presentation of the facts, your recitation of the facts and how the evening went down, it doesn't sound like you did anything wrong. You say that your girlfriend invited them to come stay, that your girlfriend didn't expect anything would happen, that you guys went out and had a couple of rounds of drinks maybe even a few, maybe even three rounds of drinks, which isn't incapacitation level alcohol consumption, right? So people were still capable of giving or withholding their consent. And it was this other guy's girlfriend who proposed the four-way, that you and your girlfriend didn't even initiate the four-way, that it was the other guy's girlfriend. And then the whole thing unfolded and you say you were very careful to solicit active ongoing consent throughout. And I'm going to have to take your word for it because I don't have the videotape to review. If it went down the way that you say that it did and your sober girlfriend who was there backs you up, then yeah, it could be a case where the next day they both the night before and the morning after in the case of the other guy did things that they regretted, did things that they felt bad about. Maybe one misread the signals the other was sending you know, there, people can experience social pressure in a group scene or, or not even a group sexual scene where one person in a couple is like, huh, yeah, sure, whatever, huh? And looking at the other person in the couple like, get us the fuck out of here. I'm done. But they don't want to be rude. So they go along and they end up seeing a movie they don't want to see. They end up at a dinner party they'd really rather not be at. They end up with a dick in them that they really didn't want in them, right? And then the next day they're angry and so what do they do? You know, they can direct their anger at each other, which is going to make their relationship much more complicated, or they can direct their anger outward at people that they're never going to see again. And they don't have to see again. 
And it is a way of protecting the relationship to direct that anger outward. Perhaps that's what's happening here. If things went down exactly as you say that they did, and your girlfriend, who has a bias in your favor, of course, backs you up and she was the sober one, it could be the case where one of them didn't want what was happening to be happening and didn't withhold their consent because they didn't want to disappoint the other or they didn't want to be the joy kill or the buzz kill in the room and they're mad. They're mad because nobody picked up on their perhaps subtle or alcohol blurred signals of distress where they wound up doing things they didn't really want to do as they went along to get along. Now they're mad. Now they're hurt. And yeah, they could direct that hurt at you or perhaps as likely or 30% likely you in your alcohol impaired, slightly impaired state didn't pick up on a cue, didn't hear what was said when you were, as you say, actively soliciting consent throughout. Maybe you missed something and pushed past something. And there was an awkward, unpleasant moment that curdled the whole evening for one or the other of both of them. So yeah, I think that it's entirely possible you did nothing wrong. I think it's also possible that you might have, without malice, done something that felt wrong for them. And I think your resolution not to mix new people with sex and alcohol is the right takeaway for you guys because you don't want to feel like a shitty person because you're not a shitty person. You don't want to feel like the kind of person who after sex leaves other people feeling hurt or violated without any idea how you hurt or violated them because you were not trying to hurt or violate anybody and it's not part of who you are to hurt or violate people. But that is something that could have happened in this instance. You might have hurt or violated someone without malice, no intent, circumstance, alcohol. And if you don't want to be in this position again, you don't want to be making this kind of a call to some faggot with a sex podcast again for absolution, attack going forward, no booze when you're negotiating these things. Go out for drinks after. Fuck first, right? Go out for drinks after. And maybe that first time you get together with another couple, leave the penetration out of it. Like for a lot of people, particularly if this couple hasn't engaged in three ways or four ways before or group sex before, penetration is a big deal. Looms large. So maybe the next time you and your girlfriend go for it with two new people, it's soft swap. That's what the swingers call it. Oral mutual masturbation. And you leave the PIV or PIB penis and vagina or penis and boyfriend, your penis and her boyfriend for next time. Hi, Dan. I'm a longtime listener of your show. I'm calling from Canada. Um, I have a question for you that uh, my husband and I have been debating. We have a good friend of ours who uh, is the mother of our godson. And uh, in the event that she passes away, she wants us to have custody of him. And uh, I think that we should fully disclose to her that we're swingers because it may affect her decision. Whereas my husband... He thinks we shouldn't because it won't involve our godson in any way. What do you think we should do? Is this just because you don't want custody of this kid? Should something happen to your friend? Because I see no other reason to disclose this irrelevant fact about your sex life to this woman who's creating this will. Hopefully that, you know, adding a provision to this will that will never come into force because the odds that she is going to die before her child is – 
an adult are vanishingly slim. Let's yank out our actuarial tables. We're doing that a lot around here lately. This is probably not ever going to happen. So you're only making it a problem by feeling honor-bound to disclose this irrelevant detail about your sex life. Does your swinging prevent you from executing the duties of parent? No, there are millions of people out there who are swingers who are parents and who are good and decent and loving parents. There are some swingers out there who are lousy parents, just as there are some people out there in committed monogamous relationships who are lousy parents. But you don't have to tell your friend this any more than you have to tell your friend that when you blow your husband, you slip a finger into his ass. She doesn't need to know. It's a detail about your sex life that has absolutely no impact on your parenting or your ability to parent in the event of her unlikely death before her child reaches his maturity. So I'm with your husband. No need to disclose this information. No need whatsoever. Unless what you want to tell her is to not leave that kid to you because you don't want that kid. You don't want to be responsible for that kid. You don't want to be a parent if she dies in a car accident. Then just tell her that. Tell her that you love this kid. You will always be there for this kid. You will be the aunt. You will be the babysitter. If anything should happen to this kid, you will stay in this kid's life, but you do not want to be this kid's custodial guardian in the event of her highly unlikely demise. Hey, Dan and Tech Savvy, I was a 25-year-old female in the Midwest calling back, actually, um, because I left a pretty brief message about um, female dom uh, a little bit ago, and I wanted to give a little bit more detail for what I'm looking for in terms of advice. First of all, I, I've done it before, um, but I struggle with the piece as a female um, to a male participant getting the mail submitted or bound um, because I can't overpower them physically. So I'm wondering kind of the steps to, to have that happen, if they just kind of submit um, and consent, and then you go from there. And then also moving forward from there, kind of how often do you actually have sex or do something where there's physical touch, where they're getting what they kind of want from you? And how often is it just a scene for them to think about later? Um, I really struggle with knowing when to reward them because I kind of just want to be a little bit brutal and be like, <laughs> no, just do um, do what I want and you don't get to touch me. So I'm kind of just wondering how it works and if you can lay out a kind of a scene, um, a typical scene of female dominatrix, male participant, or female dominatrix, female participant, either way. Thanks so much. Joining me in the studio, Mistress Matisse. She's a Seattle-based sex worker, activist, writer, a terrific writer. You can find a recent op-ed she wrote about sex work and decriminalization at The Stranger's blog, slog at thestranger.com. Also, for many years, a professional dominatrix and for almost as many years, a guest in Savage Love, the column and on the Savage Love cast. <laughs> yes. I, it's amazing how I've done all these things and yet I'm like 29 years old. It's, it's crazy. Really, it really is. Yeah. I keep getting older and older. You stay the same age. <laughs> Don't look in my closet at that portrait. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so she asked a question that I think a lot of people who are interested in S&M have seen a little bit of porn but don't know anything are confused by – she seems to be confused by like how do you tie somebody up? How does she as a woman overpower a bigger, stronger man to begin the scene? Yeah, she's. I think she's thinking of what we would call the scene. That's it's called a takedown scene. What that means, you, you actually do sort of like tackle someone or physically jump on them and overpower them. Which is not how ninety nine point nine nine percent of right. BDSM or bondage play scenes begin. Right. It, it is a paradox for some people to think 
you can't – you have to accept collar. You yeah. can't actually tie somebody up in most cases without their cooperation. Very rarely. Yeah, very rarely. It's a specialized kind of scene. It is not at all assumed or um, you know, kind of a given – and it's definitely not in any kind of female domination scene. I mean, unless you are advertising as like, you know, the Dom's answer to Ronda Rousey, uh, guys are going to assume that um, the MMA fighter. Oh, okay. Like, I have no uh, idea yeah. what you're talking about. Oh, my God. People are fapping right now. I'm just saying the words. So, yeah, she's a very badass mixed martial arts fighter who could totally kick anyone's ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, and, and there's a niche of that. There's a niche of Dom's and, and, you know, women who are not pro-Dom's and who are Dom's in the scene who are fighters, and that's the fetish. And they'll take you down. They will overpower you. Yes, but that's a very small niche, and if someone is that, you will know it, like in the first 10 seconds. But typically what happens in a scene is somebody submits to the other person's control, allows them to tie them up. Absolutely. Now, there's ways of speeding that process up that you can, you know, kind of sneak up on someone and put the zip ties on them. Once once you've gotten consent to the scene, uh, you can quickly put metal handcuffs on someone, being careful not to bruise their wrists, but there are ways to make that, to kind of expedite that so that it seems like, okay, all of a sudden, just boom, I mm. have them. Um, and so according to their level of, of consent and you know your level of negotiation, you can use all of those things. But uh, most of the time, yeah, they come in and kneel down and offer themselves and you take them and that's really quite sweet. But for a newbie who thinks, well, then how is that real? If the person let you tie them up, where's the domination, where's the control? And there's a saying, I've seen it on, literally seen it on pillows, like needle pointed on pillows in a friend's house who's a in M. It's not bondage until you want to get out. Oh, I love that. that That's there are great. people who want to get into the bondage or excited about getting into the bondage. And the tops thing is to keep you in bondage after you want to get out. <laughs> that and that's where suddenly really this great. thing that really wasn't bondage at the start because you consented to it because you wanted to be tied up becomes bondage. That's that's a charming way of expressing it. I had not thought of it quite that way, but yeah, it's true. So long as the wanting to get out isn't framed as withdrawing of consent. If somebody right. withdraws their consent, you got to let them out. Right. But if somebody is just enjoying being in the deep end of the pool, a little over their heads, a little yes. scared. Yes. Yes. I mean, and that's and that's the way most BDSM scenes, regardless of you know gender of the participants, that's the way it goes. It's usually not kind of this you know sense of overwhelming physical corrosion at the front end. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, I think she's making this a little bit harder than she needs to. Um, Overthinking it. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, um, which is sort of charming and typical. To help her think it through, what would you recommend? Any videos, any books, anybody she should be reading? Uh, well, I'm still uh, – yeah, see, this is bad. I'm still recommending this book that I read, you know, 20 years ago, uh, called Sensuous Magic by an author named Patrick Califia, because it's written to be like, like here's the scene, here's how it breaks down, here how here's how you do it. It's like a workbook with examples, mm-hmm. and there are probably other books like that out there now. But sometimes it's hard to read fiction and translate it to reality, and sometimes the kind of BDSM how-to books don't have little erotic vignettes that you can go, oh, that's how that would look in my life. You mm-hmm. know, so I like uh, the sensuous magic book because it has kind of both. So Patrick Califia, look it up. I'm, I've, I could check right now on uh, Amazon to see if it's still available. It, I think it is. It still is. in print. Yeah. Um, the other thing she asks, uh, and then I have something else I wanted to talk to you about while you were here, is she asks, how do you have sex or how do you fold sex into the scene? Professional dominatrixes do not fold sex into their scenes. But is she's wondering, is sex is something she should withhold or deny? Is it a reward? 
what is sex for the dominant woman in a scene with a submissive man? Is it something she's giving him or something she's taking from him? And I love that she asked you to tell her when to have <laughs> sex. So, so all every guy who bothers us, you're actually, she's just doing what Dan Savage told her to do. But Dan Savage turned around and asked you. Dan Savage <laughs> oh, knew that asking me. You're I, right. So I knew that asking me was wrong and I'm giving it to you. you topping those guys. I love this system so much. You're I'm topping kinda, me, topping her, topping <sighs> the guy she's with. Kind of getting all flustered here. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. Okay. Ah. Um, yeah. So, um, what she actually asked was how often are you supposed to reward them? And the answer is only as often as you want to. Uh, and she said, sometimes I just want to be brutal and tell them not to touch me. And that is a totally okay thing to say. Um, and I, you should have a t-shirt with brutal on it and just go there with it. But, but it frames sex as something that she, independent of the, her male partner, would never be interested in. It kind of does, and there, that is that is a, a trope that is often put forward. And, and by sex, I mean vaginal intercourse, because BDSM, even with no genitals touching, is sex. Right. Yeah. I mean, you and I both agree on that. It does. Uh, femdoms are sort of pressured towards that because you know to be penetrated is to lose control. There's a whole lot of societal things about that. Uh, so she may think she's not supposed to want to have sex. She may not want to, and that's okay too. Uh, a lot. I can really enjoy lots of scenes without any kind of general stimulation, and it's hot, and I'm sexually aroused by it. But women are, you know, it's just uh, so. Wait, you were just you just said women are. This is the question that people have been asking for millennia. Women are women. Can, women can enjoy being aroused without necessarily wanting completion, and men can enjoy that too. That mm-hmm. was like I was a. I started to make a very sexist generalization, and so I kind of caught myself, and Dan made me. <laughs> but uh, I, it seems like women can enjoy things that are erotic without thinking, and now I must have an orgasm, and I must have like this all like, no, you know, that was kind of hot. On to the next thing. Uh, so, so yeah, she should reward, she should reward her partners in the way that they want, which can be touching them, having intercourse with them, fucking them up the ass of the dildo, like whatever it is. Um, but for somebody who's kinky and an S&M bottom, you need to the, – the caller needs to understand that the bondage itself or whatever erotic pain she's inflicting on them, those are the rewards too. Those are. Those are. Uh, I mean I'm – in my experience, uh, male submissives often do want something else if yeah. you're willing to give it to them or not uh, because, you know, boys will be boys in that manner. And, and a good one will be accept whatever boundaries you, you put lay out. But the thing is that consent is a dynamic thing and whatever you're doing – that's kind of taking him to the deep end of the pool. Uh, you have to keep him happy while he's doing it. We're going to just talk about, you know, female, uh, dominant male submissive here for the sake of brevity. You have to keep him wanting to be in deep into the pool. Erotically uh, engaged. Yes. Uh, so whatever his, the level of need he has to stay engaged in the scene is what you need to give him or the scene will be over. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of weigh what you want to do with what will keep this guy doing this thing as long as you want him well, to do it. Well, that's to sustain uh, what the pain, pleasure mm-hmm. balance. You're, you're mixing up his consent. Yeah. You are stroking his cock with crushing mm-hmm. his balls or whatever. Right. Right. I, like I seduce consent throughout the scene. I continue to seduce just a little more consent that I'm using up just a little, you mm-hmm. know, just keep you like right there. Uh, and as long as I want you there and you also have to look at it in that if she wants to play with the same partner more than once, um, she has to lead this person with the idea that this was a good idea, that I had fun and enjoyed this. So it's possible to kind of just burn someone up, you know, and, you know, not not that they withdrew consent, but they think, oh my God, that was an ordeal that I never want to go through again. Right, and I think you may be you may be onto something here. With she may understand the bondage 
and the infliction of pain or punishment, erotic torment, mm-hmm. you got, it's got to be erotic torment, yeah. not just torment. If you're regarding collar, the bondage and everything else you're doing before the sex as an ordeal, as something that he's getting no pleasure from until you reward him with the pleasure of sex – they're probably not going to come back. It's going to narrow your dating pool considerably. You know, it's like there is there is a lid for every pot. Like whatever your thing is, there's somebody in the world who wants you to do it to a them. A few hardcore masochists yeah. who just want brut- brutality. But most people in s want it's right. mixed together into sort of a right. pinwheel cookie of pain and pleasure. You have to weigh how often do I want to play? Uh, do I want to play a lot with a lot of different partners? Okay, you're going to have to make this more palatable to more people. If you're willing to play rarely and infrequently, then you can hold to your standards and refuse to do one single thing that doesn't meet with your fantasy. It's your choice. Book again? Sensuous Magic by Patrick Cliffia. Now, let's, while you're here, I wanted to talk also about uh, sex work Yay. and your activism because a really important thing uh, just happened about a week and a half ago. Oh my God, so Amnesty important. International, their board, their governing body, yes. they voted to back the decriminalization of sex work. They, they, yeah, they voted to change their policies, to amend their policies, yet to support the, the idea that we should have full human rights. And this was a controversial decision. And by we, you mean the sex workers yeah. of this world? Yes. Um, well, and also the, the clients. Right? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like the, part of the problem with it. It was that you know, clients also have human rights, and that was just insupportable to some people. Right. There are people out there who think they're pro-sex workers, pro-sex workers' lives and rights, but they want to see the Johns all arrested. Right. Or they, it's called the Swedish model, mm-hmm. where the sex workers theoretically aren't being punished or persecuted or policed, but we're rounding up their clients and their Johns and throwing them in jail. Right. And they want to abolish all prostitution and sex work. They think that that's, that's their ideal end goal, is that all this will just stop. So they may say by that – By halting demand. Y- that's the Swedish model. Let's, yeah. let's halt demand and then there will be no people doing sex work. But in the meantime, we're not going to persecute sex workers. But you wrote very persuasively on Slog that the Swedish model does result in the persecution it of sex workers. It really does. It's really terrible. It's really bad. Um, yeah, they are evicted from their homes. They are denied services. They are like they are refused police protection. They have children taken away. They It's like everything bad, they're deported. Anything bad that could happen to you that isn't actually putting you in jail cell happens to sex workers on the Swedish model. Because they're still being policed. Because how do you arrest the Johns if you aren't right, right. going after the sex worker to get to the John? Right. So you sit in you know, a cop car outside you know, her house or you follow her around in a cop car. Like that's not, that's not scary and weird and terrible at all to do that. Uh, and then you – I mean you kind of declare her body to be a crime scene. It's like you no longer – this is not your body. This is a thing that we have jurisdiction over and we're going to – but it's like, no, this is my actual body that mm-hmm. you're taking away from me. There are a lot of people out there who believe a whole bunch of female celebrities signed a letter uh, opposing Amnesty International's uh, call for the decriminalization of sex work while they were still considering it. And they don't believe that any woman would ever willingly choose to do sex work, sort of the the false consciousness accusation – or that women who do do sex work by choice are making the choice under economic duress, so it's not a free choice. It's amazing to me that an actress can't imagine that someone would ever trade sex for money. I'm like, really? You're a terrible actress then. That's <laughs> not a very big leap 
at all. <laughs> People do that all the time. It's really not strange. Maybe it's some sort of historical uh, inner conflict that people that actors have because actors and actresses for centuries were regarded as yes not much better than and usually also working as prostitutes. Yes, yes, that was the irony of that. I mean. For Anne Hathaway, who's actually played a sex worker, to say that she can't understand how anyone would be a sex worker, I'm like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. You're just a moron. Uh, I mean, they were just – they wanted some spotlight and they wanted the media headline and so they said what they were told to say. I don't think they'd have the first bit of insight into this whole situation. Now, one of the things I think so many people were getting hung up on uh, about Amnesty International's call for the decriminalization of sex work is that – People who might have been able to say, okay, we should decriminalize sex work by sex workers, it also called for decriminalizing pimping, running brothels, and being Johns. Mm -hmm. And people hear pimp, madam, brothel, and they just think monster. Yeah. Yeah. The word pimp especially is designed now and used now uh, in a very uh, racist way to bring about this very confused kind of emotional response uh, about like little children being kidnapped and held by, you know, dark skinned people. And, you know, it's just that like the Neil Neeson taken thing just kind of has been etched into people's consciousness. And that's so often false. Uh, it's like not like that never happens ever in the whole world. It does sometimes. But the vast majority of people who are arrested for uh, – uh, trafficking uh, are not that. There's a case right now in Alaska. Yesterday, a woman who uh, has never – she's a white, youngish woman, never uh, held anyone, never – like uh, uh, there's no violence. She was sentenced to five years in prison for trafficking because she ran an escort service. Uh, and there was never – like no one complained about her. There was, she was not like – but she ran an escort service, so she's a trafficker. So five so she's a years in prison, yeah. When I was 24 years old, I went to work at a massage parlor on the east side and the owner got pregnant and had a troubled pregnancy and so she had to stay in bed. So I became the manager. I was 24 uh, and I knew what I was doing. I thought, yeah, I think legally this makes me a pimp. But I collected the house cut and I gave it to the owner and that, that you know, I could have been arrested for, for – and, and sent to jail. I mean, so I, it is true. When people hear pimp, they think African-American gangbanging thug. Yeah. That, that, that racist image mm -hmm. pops into their head. Mm -hmm. Controlling uh, a, a bunch of women who are beaten and helpless and exploited. But actually people like 24-year-old – Probably yeah. younger than most of the women that yeah. were working in the massage parlor. You were technically legally their pimp and could have been brought I was, up in those charges. I was. And, yeah. So that term is so broad as to be meaningless and yeah. yet people latch on to it. It really – yeah, they do. And I will tell them like – if that if that mythical pimp in your imagination, if he exists, the police already know about him. He's probably committing other crimes. He, I mean, even just you know holding someone against their will and forcing them to have sex—that's already a crime. We don't need to make up a new special category of crimes that are theoretically intended for him, but actually catch people like me. You know, if I call up a friend right now and say, "Hey, I've got a client. And he wants to see two girls coming over." That's pimping. Like that's all that you have to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be the roommate. You can be the boyfriend uh, of a sex worker and be arrested for pimping and trafficking because uh, they say, oh, you ha must have had control over her. Uh, it's like this catches up all kinds of people in its net. And, they're and it just tacks into that or, or, or weaves right into that. Mm -hmm. No woman would ever willingly do mm -hmm. this. If a woman is doing this, somebody right. is forcing her or controlling her. Right, which I don't know how someone could say that's a really feminist idea. That, that So like the total erasure of any kind of agency, like you can't really consent. Like if you don't respect my yes, how can you respect my no? 
no and yes only exist in the same universe. So if you think I, you know, I don't, you should never come in and say that the state has a right to override your consent and declare this act to be a crime against your wishes in either direction. One last thing I want to get you on the record about before we go, because this, I get letters all the time from guys who are, who have bought sex or are thinking about buying sex and they feel terrible about themselves because they believe or they've heard or they've been told that people who buy sex are terrible people. And that is what's sort of put out there. That anybody who pays for sex is a, a, a ter- real men don't buy girls, real men don't buy sex. And that it's violent and abusive and, you know, I got a letter recently from a a woman who found out that her boyfriend years ago had seen a prostitute once and she now feels that he isn't the person that she knows him to be, that only a monster could do that. You've been a sex worker for – Over 20 years. Tell us about Johns. Are they asshole monsters? Nightmares? Are there nice no, ones? No, I, I, my clients. And Johns isn't the word. Johns is the word that Amnesty used in their, yeah. uh, their resolution, and it's not a word that clients is the preferred term by sex workers. Yes. But I'm just using it now because that is the word that gets used. That's the one the word that gets thrown around out there about in the Swedish model about ending demand. Johns, Johns, Johns. Pimps aren't who we think they are. Are Johns? No, they are absolutely not. Uh, in my very long experience of sex worker, it's been amazing to watch uh, the, the client population evolve and grow as people in the 20 years that I've known them. When, when I first began doing sex work when I was 19, we were both – both clients and sex workers were very afraid of each other. We were very nervous around each other. We both kind of thought the other group was going to do something to us, uh, harm us in some ways. So this very edgy relationship. And now uh, it's, it's changed a lot, probably mostly because of the internet, and there's this relationship that we have there. So and the internet, because it actually facilitated conversations between clients and sex workers outside of the uh-huh. commodified right. relationship in the moment. And, and we, and we like sex workers got to see client conversations between clients among themselves and kind of eavesdrop on those. They eavesdropped on ours. I mean, you know, in an obviously public way. Uh, so it, it gave us all a lot more insight. We're all a lot less afraid of each other than we used to be. And that's great. Um, I mean, there, you know, I have amazing, amazing guys that I've had relationships with for, you know, 10 and 15 years. And it's a relationship. It's a relationship in a bubble, but it's a relationship. Um, and they're like normal people. They are like sweet and nice and sometimes annoying, but sometimes really awesome. And I've had clients do some of the most amazing things for me that I've ever seen, just like generosity, kindness, people going out of their way to be really sensitive to me when I was, you know, when I needed it. Uh, there are, you know, there are douchebags, there are assholes, there are, but they're not. Because they're the same of husbands. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's just, they're just normal people. Uh, sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're annoying. Uh, and there's not violence over, overrepresented there that's not in the general population. There's not any level of violence among clients that's not present among violence and guys on Tinder. Okay, so we've seen the emergence of a sex workers' rights movement. Yeah. Uh, a politicized sort of growing. Growing and powerful, more and more powerful movement. I think this amnesty resolution is really evidence of the growing power of the sex workers' rights movement. Do we need and are we seeing a client's rights movement in tandem? Uh, we're not seeing it. It's a really fascinating idea and I kind of wish that they would do it. Um, Clients have the most to lose by coming out. Like when you're a sex worker, you're, you get so much stigma and like marginalization. Like you come out and, and you understand this, like you, it can only get better. Like it'll, but clients don't have that. Their life will often not get better if they come out. Um, and 
they, they have less to gain than we do, which I still wish they would come out and, and fight and, the stigma. Yeah, and some of them do. Uh, occasionally, you see like uh, Jim Norton, who's a like a shock comedian who I don't think is necessarily funny, but did come out and write a thing in time about yeah, I've done this, and and a few other guys have done that, and I think that's really cool and admirable. Uh, I still think that sex workers' voices should be kind of centered in this. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you get like clients coming out and they want to talk about how you know the rights stuff should be centered around there wishes and it's like yeah no actually it's about us dudes but um <laughs> but thank you for playing and so it's cool that you said you know what you said but it's about us i completely agree but i do think with the effort by so many people backing the swedish model and the going after the clients that if, as they attempt to move the stigma and the shame reluctantly it's because of outspoken i think sex workers rights advocates that they're not able to con- to continue shaming and stigmatizing the sex workers that they're just trying to move the shame and stigma over to the clients and the johns in the swedish model and if the clients organize and speak up that then the stigma and shame has nowhere to go well i hope they listen to you do what dan says listen to dan yes and i will say the same about mistress matisse do what she says <laughs> i've been encouraging my readers and listeners to do what you say forever i like this system i do, I do. where can people find you uh i'm very active on twitter uh mistress matisse that's the at sign mistress matisse i have a blog that i occasionally post at at mistressmatisse.blogspot.com and of course there's always mistressmatisse.com where you can get links to everything that i do Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's so great to see you. Thanks for having me. Hi there, Dan. This is a girl from the Camas, Washington area. My father has been dating someone probably about 30 years younger than him for, I'd say, about five years. And when I say that, it immediately jumps to, I'm mad about her age, right? No, although we are close to the same age, that's not actually what bothers me about uh, their relationship. Basically, the girl is bad news. She, since the beginning of their relationship, has not been healthy for him. She's made it, she does very unhealthy things, for example. Um, She's made it so that she needs him in her life in order to continue functioning, such as for her job, she's tied into her job, her car, her bike, uh, motorcycle, everything in her life. She's leached him too. She even has tattooed the same arm as him with the same tattoo as him and gotten multiple tattoos on her body that are completely representative of him. And even one of them says his name in it. She's obsessed with him. She's tried to kill herself multiple times and he leaves or threatens to leave her. She has threatened him. She's gotten physical with him. It's just a very unhealthy relationship for my dad. I'm worried about him and she, things just keep getting worse. She wants to marry him. She won't leave him alone. My 14-year-old brother lives with them, and he's been getting in a lot of trouble, and things keep getting worse and worse and worse. He hates her, and the situation is extremely messed up. My mom can't go over to the house. The custody's messed up because the girl, her mom's extremely violent. The whole situation's messed up, Dan. I just want advice to break it down small. What do you do when there's someone toxic in your life? who's attached to someone that you care very much about. And no matter how many times I remove myself from him and his life, it doesn't make a difference. I always find myself needing to come back to my father for some reason. It's really hard to see him be this way. He calls me crying late at night, and he's a big man. This is a biker we're talking about. It sounds stupid to say that because 
just because you're big doesn't mean you're big in the inside, but this woman is not good for my dad, and I don't know what to do when there's just a parasite in your life that is impossible to remove, and when someone doesn't want help but keeps asking for it. I recently wrote a post of one of the Savage Love letters of the day that go up on Slog, the Stranger's blog, about a really dysfunctional relationship, about somebody in a relationship with uh, someone who played similar games. This person threatened to crash her car with her in it if the guy that had taken a break from her was extricating himself from the relationship, didn't start answering her phone calls after he'd blocked her on Facebook and blocked her number. And so he started answering her phone calls, successfully manipulated. And somebody recommended the book, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, Understanding Borderline Personality by Gerald Kreisman. I haven't read it myself, but it has wonderful reviews on Amazon and maybe this book would be of some assistance to your father. If your father were my father, what I would tell my father is that this is a parasite and parasites, you used that word before I did. You called her a parasite yourself. And parasites, once the host that they've attached themselves to disappears or is destroyed by them, they will find a new host. She is not going to fucking kill herself if he leaves her. That is a stratagem on her part. She is manipulating him with those threats. She is taking herself hostage. She is pointing a gun at herself and saying, do what I tell you to do or the hostage gets it. The odds that she will actually pull the trigger are really slim. And if she were to actually pull the trigger, that is and was her problem, not your father's problem. You're not obligated to stay with someone all the rest of your life because they are willing to take themselves hostage or do themselves harm. The real victim in this shit show is your 14-year-old brother who needs to get the fuck out of that house. If he cannot escape to his mother's house, if he cannot live with your mother, think about inviting him to come and live with you. Step up, big sister, if it's possible. If you can take him in, take him in. Get him out of that horrifying situation. Get a lawyer. Go find a lawyer who has some expertise around elder abuse. I don't know how old your dad is. He's not that old. Still find a lawyer with some expertise around elder abuse. It sounds like this parasite is not just emotionally wrapping her tendrils around your father's neck, but financially dependent upon or exploiting your dad. Perhaps a lawyer who's worked on elder abuse cases that involve this kind of exploitation would be of assistance, may be able to help your dad. And then there's an intervention. There's changing the locks. There's moving your dad in the middle of the night and not telling this crazy person where your dad is cutting her off, and then she can spin in circles like the Tasmanian devil until she digs a hole in the ground too deep to pull herself back out of, for all you guys care. Extreme circumstances call for extreme measures, and this sounds like it's an extreme circumstance, and you're all going to have to, your mom, you, your brother, your dad, you're going to have to face up to this and you're going to have to act, and it is going to be a shit show when you act. It will be fucking fugly. But it'll be a lot of fugly concentrated in a short amount of time. Whereas taking the passive course, doing nothing, allowing this woman to have her way, is going to be a whole lot of fugly spread out over a whole lot longer a period of time. And in the end, it will be worse. Tear the bandit off, pull the trigger, pick your metaphor, but act. Hi, Dan. I'm uh, calling to get some feedback on the guy who 
is with the qualification. And I think that um, I think you guys didn't really consider the what the experience of this relationship is like for that guy. I, I think that this guy should have a six month period where maybe he's not out to his out to his family and friends, but he's out to his partner's friends. This guy who called, he can say not an ultimatum of this awesome relationship that is giving you sex, that is giving you um, fulfillment, is suddenly going to disappear. It's you have six months to be out to all of my friends and see what that is like and see how fulfilling that is. And, uh, and that can be a way for him to step out of the closet the same way that I did when I was able to um, be really out during my semester abroad. Um, that was something that was really scary to me. And so being able to do it in a con- more controlled, contained situation was really fulfilling. Hey, Dan, I uh, just wanted to comment on the woman who called in and was upset about the real life meeting with the man she had met on Tinder not living up to her expectations and set by the picture. And I, I think your advice was generally you know, pretty spot on about not getting too emotionally involved before you've uh, met in real life and face to face. But I do think you were pretty quick to buy into her premise about this being somehow his fault. Um, and, and maybe he did certainly uh, set himself up for this a little bit, but uh, I don't know. Just It sounded to me like what happened here is this guy wanted to have his best pictures of himself out there, as we all do when we're trying to meet and impress folks. And it seems like a really slippery slope, really fine line between misrepresenting yourself and you should have shown me just what a fat, hideous, ugly monster you were in your pictures. Um, And just wanting to have that good picture of us where our hair looks nice and the angle is flattering and and so on. And uh, I found her anger at this guy to be a little off-putting and a little misplaced, to be honest with you. I um, I think it's better directed at herself for, for having spent that emotional energy without uh, verifying that the physical attraction was actually something that, that was there for her. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you have a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hump, my amateur porn film festival, is coming to Brooklyn and other cities. Go to humptour.com for information about tickets and for information about submitting a film to next year's Hump Fest at humptour.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. And speaking of Twitter, Kelly Jane at Kelly Jane tweets, finally became a Magnum subscriber to the Savage Lovecast. Enjoy my $40, Dan. Love the bit with Mike Birbiglia and 428. Hashtag Savage Love. Thank you very much for subscribing, Kelly Jane, to the Savage Lovecast Magnum. But it's only 36 bucks a year. If you paid 40 I guess you tipped us. Thanks for the tip. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for that.